0: Our scripture text for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 35 through 59. Hear now the word of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray together. Father, you love us too much as your children to give us a stone when we need bread. Would you give us your word? Feed us by the bread of life today. We ask you for grace. We ask you for attentiveness, for focus. Even as we may be at home and potentially surrounded by distractions, would you help us to hear what you say to us clearly? We ask you for all the blessings of Christ. Open our hearts and minds to be taught by your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's passage intertwines two worthy and important issues. Uh, The first issue that Jesus raises in this passage is his own sufficiency. Um, The entire passage really from beginning to end is Jesus making this series of remarkable claims about himself to the effect that if you trust in him, you will be satisfied and you will live forever. And last week we focused very closely on Jesus and the fact that he meets our greatest need for joy, and for everlasting life. And so we won't dwell too much on that aspect of what we're looking at this morning. Instead, we're going to look more closely at the second issue that Jesus raises this morning. You see, what Jesus does this morning is he intertwines this discussion of his sufficiency and his life with an explanation of why such an extraordinary person as himself can still be rejected by people ever think about this I think preachers are used to preaching a sermon and they know some people are going to respond They know some people aren't going to respond Uh, when, when we preach we understand that there's going to be rejection we also know that we're fallible we know that we are mouthpieces for God but at the same time that we we still don't live up to that high calling that we have and so we expect that oftentimes the message won't exactly get through That's not a problem with Jesus. Jesus was a perfect messenger for God. There is no one who ever spoke more clearly from God than Jesus. And yet even Jesus gets rejected. And so what Jesus does is as he sets out to explain why some people don't believe even though he's the one bringing the message. And as he sets out to explain why some people don't believe, he is inevitably led toward dealing with the question of predestination. Now, in my own experience, there are very few subjects that get Christians across various denominational lines quite as interested, quite as argumentative, as the issue of predestination. This is not necessarily controversial in our denomination, in the Presbyterian Church in America, at a leadership level at least all Presbyterian ministers and elders believe what the Westminster Confession says as a summary of what the Bible says and and we believe and we understand the Bible is very clear on this issue our standards are very clear on this issue and you can't be an elder in the Presbyterian Church in America without already believing what the Bible says on this subject Um, but that does not always mean that church members have been taught well on these issues. Uh, And it means that for us as a church, we need to listen well to what Jesus says here, because predestination is not an issue that God has taught us about in the Bible, because God just likes to see believers argue with each other. There There are things God loves more than listening to believers argue with one another. You know, he hasn't given us... These things in the Bible to, to confuse us. He hasn't given them to confound us. Uh, and He certainly hasn't told us about predestination so that we will become puffed up or so that we'll have a sense of, of our own superiority. May it never be. It's quite the contrary. Instead, Jesus sees predestination as having a very practical purpose that should change how we see ourselves. How we see our neighbors, how we see the work that Jesus has done for us. When we understand what predestination says and what Jesus is saying about this issue, it coats us in humility. And so Jesus teaches us three things about believers in the text that that, that will help us, I think, wrap our heads around at least part of this issue. Jesus says that believers are given He says that believers are drawn, and he says that believers are secure. Those are our three points this morning. So since Jesus raises the issue of predestination, let's follow his lead. Let's go where he goes, let's see what he says, and let's consider why Jesus thinks that it's worth our effort to understand this important subject. First, Jesus teaches that believers are given— In verse 37, Jesus is making the case that the unbelief that we see in verse 36 can be explained. And Jesus says that the unbelief in verse 36 can be explained by a prior theological reality. So he's about to get us into the doctrine of God. He's about to use his understanding of God to explain something very practical, which is Jesus, people aren't believing in you. People aren't trusting in you. And so what does he say? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. To make short order of it, he's saying, he's saying these people that don't believe haven't been given to me. And so they're not coming to me. There's a larger point here, That these these unbelieving people, in verse 36, apparently have not been drawn by the Father. Because if they had been drawn by the Father, then they would believe. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But what I want to fixate on, before we go very far, is this phrase, All that the Father gives me. All that the Father gives me. He uses this, this gift language to describe believers. And and that's where it brings us head-on into this notion of predestination. And, And I want to talk about what predestination is, because I've already used the word once. In fact, I've used it a couple times now. We need to make sure we understand what we mean when we talk about predestination. I think we can put it very simply. At least, Hopefully this is simply. It means that in all of eternity, God has made a decision that is even prior to the decision that you or I make to follow Jesus. We believe because we were chosen by God from eternity past, before we had ever done anything good or or evil, before we had ever had an opportunity to to do anything bad or or good. Um, And the place you see this most clearly is in Romans chapter 9. You're going to hear me point to that a couple of times here. And that's what these two pieces of the word predestination means. Of course, pre is a prefix to the word, and it means before. And destination, of course, is where we're going to, where we end up, wherever it is that we conclude. Um, And so the idea is that our destination is fixed before we reach it. That's what predestination means. And so you could imagine why in our own age... In an age that celebrates liberty, that celebrates freedom, that celebrates autonomy. That means a law unto ourselves. An age that celebrates those sorts of things. That an idea like predestination would be, I think, controversial is putting it mildly. But see, anyone who wants to understand the Bible will have to reckon with predestination. Predestination is in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 1, for example. And because it is a word that is used in Scripture, we have to understand what we mean by it. It is an idea that is clearly taught in Scripture. And so when Jesus says that believers were given to the Son by the Father, here is what Jesus means. He is referring to an agreement made between the Father and the Son before the world was even made. In theological language we call this agreement the covenant of redemption. The book of Zechariah chapter 6 calls it a covenant of peace between the Father and the branch of David. That's how it's spoken of in Zechariah chapter 6. Well the branch of David is the Messiah and so what it is is it's a covenant that goes back before God made anything and it's a covenant Between the Father and the Messiah. And and a covenant, if I could put it very simply, is an unbreakable agreement. When God makes an agreement, when the Father makes an agreement with the Son, that is an unbreakable agreement. To break that promise would be for the universe to unwind and cease to exist. Because God would have to cease being God to not make a promise, to not keep a promise between the Father and the Son. And what is the promise? The, problem, the promise is, the Father says, you are going to rescue some of mankind, some of this fallen race of humanity, and we are going to work together as one to accomplish it. Now, I think some people may say, hey, I like this idea. I like this idea of the Father and the Son making a covenant together before creation. I like this. They like the idea that God would rescue people and plan to rescue people from all eternity. People like that. I think what folks sort of squirm at though is that the element of choice here is removed from our hands and it is put into the hands of the Father. God is given the choice rather than the people, right? Because the planning takes place before any of us ever existed, before any of us ever came into existence. The decision has already been made. And we don't like that. Those who are given to the Son by the Father don't have control over whether they are given. And oh, does that rank a lot. There are people that Jesus says are given to him by the Father, but there are also some who are not, and and we will make a a reference to that in in a little bit. But when we talk about God's freedom to choose some to be given to the Son, we are talking about a doctrine we call election. Again, this does connect somewhat with American democracy. We have elections, uh, government, uh, presidential elections every four years. So we go to the polls and we cast our vote and we're given a choice as a citizenry. The the leaders that we have, for good or ill, are ours because we elected them. And so if you've ever heard the doctrine of election, that's sort of what we're talking about here. We're talking about a choice being made by one party. And when we talk about election from a theological perspective and in the church, We're talking about this, the fact that God is free. God is able to make choices. The Bible attributes this freedom to God. We don't have time to go there, but again, I've already made reference to it once. The book of Romans, chapter 9, really lays out the reality that God makes choices. He chooses some vessels for honor, some for dishonor, and he makes those choices before they even come into existence. So you can study that later if you're interested. But the Bible says that somebody in all of this is free. Somebody in all of this does make a choice, but it is God who is free, and it is God who makes the choice. And so the Father is free to choose some for the foundation of the world, and those that he chooses, he gives to the Son. So that when the Son comes into the world, what does he do in John chapter 17? He says, I don't pray for those who aren't mine, who you haven't given to me. He says, Father, I pray for those who are going to come to faith in me. Why? Because they're the ones who've been given to the Son. They are the ones that Jesus is about to go to the cross and lay his life down for. Now, there's an important application to this if you're a believer. I want you to know this is practical. This is applicable. I want you to know this is not just abstract theologians sitting around smoking their cigars, having fun, visiting about these things, but that this matters for you and your life. If you trust in Jesus, this teaching should convince you to the core of who you are. That you are absolutely safe and secure. John Murray said it like this: there is never a time when God will stop loving you because there was never a time when he began. All right, what does Murray mean? He means that you are secure because of the doctrine of predestination. You are secure because you are loved. And chosen from all eternity. There was no time when he began to love you. And so there can never be a time when he ceases to love you. Because he's always loved you. He sat his love upon you as his his child before you had even done anything to be remotely lovable in the first place. The reformer John Mercot puts it this way. He says, If Jesus were to drive away those who come to him, it would be an affront to the Father's gift. For the Father gave them to Jesus Christ even before the world existed. Gifts are given from one friend to another as tokens of respect and love. And so the Father gave a number of poor creatures to his Son for him to redeem and purchase for himself. If he should rebuff them now, he would not be valuing his father's love. Here's the point. If you're a believer in Jesus, this text reminds you that you are doubly loved. You are loved by the Father. You're chosen by the Father, given to the Son. And you're loved by the Son because you're the Father's gift the Son. Do you see this, this interplay between the Father and Son? You are loved by God. You are treasured the way someone treasures an important gift from someone that loves them. Because of Jesus Christ, that's precisely what you are. That's precisely what you are. You are beloved and you're treasured. Second, we see that believers are drawn Jesus makes an absolute statement in verse 44. He says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." Now remember what he's doing here in a sense he's, he's giving his explanation of not only how people why people don't come to him, he's also giving the explanation for why people do come to him There are two parts to this argument that Jesus makes. And the first is is a statement about human inability. And the second is how God overcomes that human inability. Notice this. In verse 44, Jesus makes this, again, it's an absolute statement. He says, No one can come to me. No one can come to me. You do not have the ability to come to Jesus. There is something within you that is like an invisible barrier, right? By nature, Ephesians 2, 1 says, We are all children of wrath and enemies with God, right? We don't love God, we don't want God, and we reject God. That's that's our our M-O from the womb. And so left to ourselves, Jesus says... We all have an inability to come to Jesus, right? It is an internal inability. It's not like, in theory, we couldn't come to Jesus. But it's an inability of the heart. It is an inability of the disposition. It's an inability of the will. Um, It isn't like, well, we really want to come to Jesus, but he keeps turning us away. It's not like that at all. Uh, When we say that we cannot come to Jesus... What Jesus is saying here is that none of us wants to come to Jesus at all. Left to our own devices, we will never, ever come to Christ. We might go through the formalities of religious exercise, but we won't actually come to Jesus in a saving way. And by the way, I have to admit that that sounds pretty hopeless. You know, the the Bible would be a very short book... If the message of Jesus here was, no one can come to me. If that was the beginning and end of Jesus' message, no one can come to me, then we'd all say, oh, well, then I guess none of us want to come to you, and that would be it. But you see, God has an answer. Jesus has an answer here to our inability. And it's this beautiful word that just sort of ruins what what he says before, right? He says, no one can come to me unless it's that beautiful word unless unless the father who sent me draws him you see God has an answer to our worst and darkest problems in this case our inability is met with God's divine ability right he is talking about heart change you may naturally never want to come to Jesus, and yet many do end up coming to Jesus. The question is, why is that then? I thought you said, no one can come to me. The reason is this. He is more than up to the task of changing hearts and drawing sinners to himself. God can do this. This is, this is within his wheelhouse. He does this all the time. Right? The members... Of our church, as we join this church as members, what do we do? We come to the front, and we take our church vows. And one of those vows is for us to confess, not only am I a sinner without hope in this world, save in the death of Jesus Christ our Lord, but we also claim that we trust in Him and we believe in Him. So when we make those vows, and we make those public declarations and uh, I believe in Jesus we are showing that something has happened between we cannot come and this moment what's the testimony what do we see the testimony that we see testified every time someone joins the church is this that God changes hearts and God saves sinners And he doesn't doesn't do it because he has to. He doesn't do it because he's under obligation. He does it because he chose to. He is free. By the way, that's why we call it God's free grace. Because he came to help pitiful people like you and and me. And he he changed us. And he breathed life into us. And he did it without obligation. He owed us nothing. Nothing. he can do this. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26, you see what sort of this drawing looks like. What does it look like to be awakened, to be drawn to God? Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What's being described in Ezekiel 36 is one of the greatest miracles that you can think of in all of the universe. Just imagine how, you, how incapable you are, and I'm talking about you as a person, how incapable you are of changing the hearts of people around you. Think of all the ways that you might try to influence people in your life, right? You can offer them incentives. Um, you can threaten them. You can manipulate them. Um, But you cannot change their heart. You you cannot make them love you. And yet God claims for himself the right to do just that. He can change the human heart. Now, I grew up in a church that that rejected the the teachings of predestination. And one of the things that I I did hear from many of my friends when I was struggling through these doctrines as, as a teenager... Uh, I remember hearing them say, yes, we do have to be drawn by God. We, we agree with on that. But you see, God is trying to draw everyone. And I would hear this a lot. Everyone is drawn. You can see it all around you, right? People kind of interested in God, kind of interested in what the Bible might say. Not completely interested, but kind of interested. And so then, in their minds, what is happening then is people are being wooed by God. But not having their hearts completely changed. And so their argument is, God is drawing everyone. Don't you see this? And I have to admit, at first I found that persuasive. Mainly because I I really didn't like predestination. I was already predisposed to not liking predestination predestination and so I sort of seized upon that I thought this is good I like this and I didn't like the thought that God was ultimately in charge and that he rules over everything including my own my own heart I want to be me I want to be mine I want to be unique I want to be on my own I want to be in control of everything about me the captain of my own ship the captain of my destiny that's what I wanted The problem with that thinking, this idea that God is trying to draw everybody, is it ruins the verse. It ruins the verse because you just have to keep reading. If you read the whole verse here, you find out that all who are drawn are saved. And I knew that not everybody is saved. There's enough testimony of the existence of hell, the reality of condemnation, that I knew that it was a pipe dream for me to think that there is uh, that, that, that everyone is saved. Now, how do I say that? Why do I say that everyone who is drawn is saved? Well, it's because Jesus says it. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, the idea is, if you are drawn, you are raised up. Well, we know that not everyone is raised up. It sort of ruins the idea that everyone is drawn you see it again in verse 37, a little bit earlier. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Well, if everybody comes who is given, and if coming means that you're never going to be cast out, then that means that not everybody comes, therefore not everyone is given By the Father. So so do you see the problem that's created when we try to sort of find ways to make the Father seem more gracious? We start to create conundrums. So Jesus says that all who are given by by God are drawn, and all who are drawn are raised up. If there's anyone who's not raised up, Jesus says they're not drawn. So there's a logic here. There's a logic Jesus says this twice, almost as if he is afraid of being misunderstood the first time. And the logic that Jesus uses is this. Nobody slips through the cracks. Ultimately, Jesus says there are no accidents, there are no escapees from the grace of God. Francis Thompson was an English poet who led a troubled life. As a young man, he studied for the priesthood, but he fell into financial hard times. And he was so poor that he was selling matches on the streets of London to earn money. And he would borrow paper. And and what he would do with that borrowed paper is that he would write poetry and he would submit them to literary journals in the London area. He developed physical ailments that eventually led to an opium addiction. And so he lived on the streets uh, and in the opium dens of London. And yet, Thompson did battle against his addictions and struggles, and oftentimes he found seasons of victory, and then he found long seasons of defeat. But in the midst of his struggles, he wrote one of the greatest poems of all time. It's hands down uh, one of the greatest poems ever written, and it's called The Hound of Heaven. When you're done watching this message, it wouldn't hurt to look up The Hound of Heaven. Now, he uses very antiquated language, but that's just my warning. But in the poem, Francis Thompson begins by telling how he attempted to evade the pursuing grace of God all of his life. And listen to the way he opens the poem. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. And yet what did Thompson find? As you read the poem, you see the pain that he experienced, the struggles that he endured, his attempts to evade God, whom he likens to a hound of heaven that is on his tail, pursuing him all his life, never letting him go. And yet in the end, Thompson reminds us of what Jesus says here, that all who are drawn to the Father will come. Now, here's what we shouldn't do When we hear what Jesus is saying about this subject of predestination, what we should not do is focus too much upon the question of why God doesn't draw everyone. And we will talk about why that is. But just know this, that Jesus is clearly acknowledging that not all are drawn. Jesus knows that not all are drawn, but his focus is on those who are drawn. Asking this this question of why all aren't drawn is really... I'm going to use a statement, and it might even offend. I hope, I hope it doesn't. I don't. I don't ever aim to offend. But asking the question, "God, why aren't you more gracious? Why aren't you more kind? Why aren't you more merciful?" It is a blasphemous question. It is a. It is the wrong question to be asking of God. Why is that? A God-centered worldview that sees God as the center of the universe and all of us and everything that exists as orbiting around God and existing to serve his purposes cannot ask the question, why aren't you, O God, more focused on me and my needs and my wants? See, the God-centered perspective looks at this question differently. Why did God show mercy to anyone when he owed them nothing? What was he communicating of himself to us that he would show himself to us like this, that we would see him as so gracious? Because if you ever look at God and you think, you should have been more kind, You ought to have been more merciful, O God. As soon as you say that God should do something, or as soon as you say God ought to be a certain way, or that God ought to show mercy, you are not talking about mercy anymore. You're talking about justice. Something that is deserved. Something that is owed. And yet as sinners, we know that God owes no one mercy. He owes no one kindness. Can you honestly say that God owes you kindness? Can you honestly say, knowing you, your own heart, your own past, your own decisions that you've made to bring you to this point, can you honestly, with a clear conscience say, yes, God owes me mercy. Those of us who know our own hearts, we know we can't say that. And here's why we rejoice. Because many are given to the Son by the Father. And all of them are drawn. All of them are drawn. Every one of them. And all those who are drawn by the Father will be raised up. They will be saved. Now remember again, part of Jesus' agenda here is explaining the unbelief that he keeps running into, right? Because in verse 36 he said, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe me. So he's very concerned to answer their unbelief. Even when Jesus is explaining their unbelief, what does he do? He focuses, though, on those who believe. He wants to talk about those who are drawn, those who are recipients of grace. And Jesus is also saying something to the disciples that's meant to put them in their place and even humble them a bit. Just because you believe in me, Jesus says doesn't make you great, doesn't make you wonderful, doesn't make you special. You believe in me not because you are smart or because you are holy, but because the Father sent the Holy Spirit who drew you as a fulfillment of the agreement that he made with the Son before the world existed. Do you see how he's answered the problem before it's even a problem? Before the world even exists, he's already got his plan in place to save and secure you. And he's keeping his own disciples humble in the process. Taking away from them any claim to have accomplished something. I believe in Jesus. That doesn't make me special. That makes the Father gracious. Believers, as we see then in this first point, are drawn by the Father Third, Jesus says, believers are secure. Now, we, ha- we have to be brief about this, but what Jesus does is he sums up everything else that he said. Consider the reality that Jesus has set before us this morning. Those who are given by the Father come to the Son. Those who come to the Son will be raised up. Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. He doesn't say... I might raise him up on the last day. Jesus doesn't say, I hope to raise him up on the last day. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. This is security. Think about security for a moment. Think about the things that make you feel secure. Maybe maybe door locks make you feel secure. Maybe window locks make you feel secure. Um, Maybe you live in a gated community. Uh, Maybe you live in a house that has a security system. Maybe you have a life insurance policy that makes you feel secure, knowing that your family is taken care of, right? I I don't know what the thing is in your life that makes you feel the most secure, but just let let me be blunt. If you've been given from the Father to the Son... There is nothing in your life that brings more security than that. Nothing. God has given you a fortress that is unbreakable for your soul. Jesus puts it a bit differently in verse 54. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up. Security is there again in verse 58. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There is no, no better application than this. How do you feed on that bread? You come to Jesus. How do you come to Jesus? The first thing you don't do is obsess over this question of predestination so much that you wait to feel predestined. If you're waiting to feel predestined, then you will never come. I understand, believe, uh, from the bottom of my heart that I have been predestined. I've seen the will of God play its way out in my life. I am confident of my predestination. Guess what? I wake up many days, I don't feel predestined. I know it's true, but I don't always feel that way. Now, if I was waiting to feel predestined, then I would still not believe. Do not wait for that sensation. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait for some mystical tingling, because that is not the way that God works. That's the way the cults tell us to decide. When the Mormons come to your house, they say, you should pray and ask God for the burning in the bosom. What do they do? They're calling you to have an experiential experience that you rely upon so that you can know that you're saved. And here's what I want you to see. Do not wait until you feel drawn. Don't wait till you feel elect. Don't wait for some mystical experience. What you do is you come to Jesus by faith, and trust in Jesus. That's the call. And if you do, then you're feasting on the bread that gives eternal life. It's as simple as that. Maybe you have struggled to follow some of the reasoning that Jesus has, or maybe I'm just a poor communicator and you've felt tripped up by all of these things and you find your head spinning, I want you to sort of conclude with this simplicity of what's being said here, which is trust in Jesus, and if you do, you will find your security is taken care of. Christian, why is it that you came to God? You might give answers that sort of highlight the means that God used. Maybe you'd say, uh, I came to God. Because a friend shared the gospel. I came to God because my my parent told me about Jesus. Uh, I I came to God because a book explained Christianity, and and I believe, right? Maybe you heard a Bible verse in the church, and it changed your life. Maybe you're like Augustine, and you read one passage from the book of Romans, and you can never go back after that. But Jesus says, God used those things. But if you really want to know why you came here's the real answer you were drawn by the father you get the salvation and he gets all the glory so it's hard to know how you feel about this i suspect there are a variety of, of opinions among us right on the, on the one hand you may have grown up with this teaching you may have grown up with predestination and this is Second nature to you. You know, you may be used to thinking of predestination, and uh, un- un- unbelief, and God's election. And, and you, for you, this may be as normal as the doctrine of the Trinity is for some people. But if you come from the sort of background I came from, the doctrine of predestination could actually be quite upset. It could even be shocking. You know, the idea that God chooses some for salvation is not too scandalous, but the idea that God lets others remain in their sin, wanting their sin, that they won't come to the Savior, that isn't something that a lot of evangelicals today would be very comfortable thinking about. For me, learning these things was revolutionary. It was a very big deal in my life. Part of the reason for that was to accept these hard things that Jesus says requires that we change how we see the universe. We have to have a God-centered view of ourselves, a God-centered view of the universe, a God-centered view of God's work. And I didn't have those things. When I finally accepted the truth of what Jesus was saying here, I had to abandon the way that I think. Because the way I used to think was that, well, the sun rises and falls each day because God is constantly concerned with us human beings and asking the question, how can I get these little people to see me and worship me for who I am? And the world began to change for me. Because the world became less uh, a theater for us, and more like a theater for God, where he stands at center stage. And all of that, all of us are just the bit players. And what I started to see was a universe where each and everything that God does is driven by this question. How will this demonstrate my grace? How will this demonstrate my glory? How will this demonstrate my power and my holiness and my greatness, my goodness, my perfection and my majesty? How can I display for the universe what I myself am like? That is what God says each and every day. We live in a universe that does not revolve around us. We live in a profoundly God-centered universe. And so, when you start to believe this, that the universe orbits around God, you stop asking questions like, why isn't God merciful to everybody? And you begin to ask questions like, God is so holy, why does he save anybody? So predestination really does force us to see ourselves and see our world differently. But this isn't just about thinking differently. This is, it's about living differently. What is God doing with this teaching? Part of what he's doing is promoting his own worship. Consider this. With this teaching, God is stealing away opportunities to give ourselves glory. And he's stealing away from us a lot of fear that can accompany the Christian life. If we don't think well about what God has done for us. Jesus says these hard things, and as he does, he's also robbing us of the pressure to change other people's hearts. That's his business. God is robbing us of the right to to fear, right? We can't lose if we belong to him. We can face each day, and he can steal away the terror. He can rob us, in fact that's what he's doing, he's robbing us of the right to brag. How could we boast when all of this is from him anyway? You see, in a God-centered universe that is all about him and his glory, you and I do not and cannot bear the weight of our own salvation or even our neighbor's salvation. We must do what he calls us to do. We must share the gospel with others. We have to tell others or they won't hear the gospel to believe it in the first place. But isn't there something liberating about knowing that we can be ourselves? That we can tell others about Jesus and not fear that we might mess it up or say the wrong thing. Isn't it liberating to know that you don't Hold yourself secure. That you don't carry yourself along. That your salvation is safe and secure in the hands of a God who planned this all before any of it even began. And then we can always trust Him to do what's right. Our God is profoundly committed to His own name and His own glory. And by his grace, he has brought us along for the ride. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you cause the truths of your word to be treasured by us? Make us willing to hear what you say and show us the joy that you have to share with us because of the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.